Hello, my name is Kelly Kelly. Welcome to the NICU Now audio support series. I am a NICU parent to Jackson, a micro preemie born at 24 weeks, and Lauren, a late-term preemie born at 34 weeks. I am also the founder and executive director of Hand to Hold, a national nonprofit dedicated to providing education, resources, and peer-to-peer support to families that have experienced premature birth, the loss of a baby, or have a child with a special health care need. When my son Jackson was born at 24 weeks, weighing just a pound and a half, I honestly could not picture him ever coming home. But as the long months passed and he overcame obstacle after obstacle and his weight steadily climbed ounce by ounce, it became harder and harder to leave the NICU each night without him in my arms. Of course, he still required oxygen and had not yet learned to effectively suck, swallow, and breathe, a crucial milestone before discharge. But we knew his official car seat test would come soon. My son spent four months, 105 total days in the NICU. The NICU doctors and nurses had become like family, but when it came time for Jackson to be discharged, There was little time for celebration because they were already treating other babies that had just arrived as small and helpless as Jackson had been. With little fanfare, we were sent home with a heart monitor, CPR instructions, and a long list of medications and doctors we were to call for follow-up appointments. We spent the first six months in isolation for fear of respiratory infections. Our only outings were to doctor's appointments. Jackson had his third surgery when he was 10 months old, and our medical bills quickly exceeded $1 million. While I thought the NICU stay was difficult, as I look back, the fatigue of caring for a medically fragile child, managing multiple doctor's appointments a week, as well as insurance and the demands of my career and marriage, I now know this is when the traumatic impact of the NICU stay began to take its toll on my mental, emotional, and physical health. Unfortunately, medical complications related to prematurity do not always end at discharge. Many children face lifelong challenges. Jackson took daily breathing treatments for many years to strengthen his premature lungs. He has worn corrective lenses since he was three. He has had years of physical, occupational, and speech therapy. And both my micro preemie as well as my late term preemie have experienced challenges with sensory integration disorder, visual and auditory processing delays, as well as ADD and ADHD. As parents, we are on our own to navigate a sea of doctor's appointments, medical equipment, medications, therapy, medical bills, and insurance forms, all while caring for our medically fragile infant. I'm so happy to welcome again Kara Wallen. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist and here today to help us talk about the emotional and physical challenges of caring for a medically fragile child at home. Hi, Kara. Hey, how's it going, Kelly? I'm good, and I know that you're going to have a lot to say about this because you also brought home a preemie who had a long NICU stay. And so both of us were scared of bringing those babies home after they had been in the NICU. Absolutely. Surrounded by a a care team for a long period of time. And then you're suddenly their sole 
solo yeah. provider, right? Or, you know, with along with your husband, but still a lot of responsibility. Was it was your experience like ours at all where it was sort of like leaving, especially his primary nurses in the NICU, I had become close friends with them. And then I got home and I was like, wait, you know, all of these built in supports and these incredible human beings that I had become close to were all of a sudden gone. And we were left having to manage all of these different medical issues. I mean, was your experience like that too? Very, very much. You know, I don't want to get anybody in trouble or anything, but I did call back up to the NICU typically to seek the advice of our care providers before I would reach out even to our pediatrician early on because that's where I had that relationship and trust and they knew my baby. And Mm -hmm. um, so they weren't supposed to do that at the time, but luckily they became more like family. Like one of Jackson's primary care providers later went on a trip overseas and sent us back a little tiny set of bagpipes. It's the cutest thing you've ever seen. That's like, that's seriously, <laughs> like the cutest thing I've heard of today. So, that's awesome. Uh, so they cared about us. They become a part of our family. So I think if we get a chance in another episode, we might want to talk about the emotional impact on the NICU staff and getting sure. attached to our families as well. But today we're going to stay focused and talk about the many physical, emotional challenges of bringing the baby home Mm -hmm. and becoming uh, their main care provider. Hopefully, we've been integrated into their care in the NICU, so we're getting accustomed to providing medical care Mm -hmm. and, and meeting their basic needs. But that's not always easy either with a lot of feeding issues and things like that, appearing to go home. But I have to say, all I could think about as he got bigger, we became the feeder grower, right? And uh, you're in step down and it got harder to leave every day. Mm -hmm. When he was a micro preemie and I knew I couldn't provide that kind of care, that level of care, I knew he was in the right place. It was hard to leave him. But when he got older, And he could respond to me. And I felt like he knew when I was leaving. Uh, That became harder. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I remember, you know, kissing those round cheeks, mainly because they were round because of all the medications he was taking, not necessarily because he had gained that much weight. But he resembled a full-term healthy baby at that point. And I wanted him to come home. I still laugh about our rooming in experience. It was terrible. So when did you at your hospital, what was the rooming in experience? Was it the night before the, you were yes. discharged or did you? Okay. Okay. So no pressure. Uh-huh. Well, you got one night. Here's uh-huh. 24 hours. Take yeah, care of him. Right? You better <laughs> pass the test. No, yeah. I'm glad. I mean, we had a great care team and they were, they were wonderful. But Michael and I, we really blamed each other for not being able to sue their own baby. Mm-hmm. You know, even though we've been integrated into the, his care, I mean, when it becomes just you and trying to know their cues and respond to them and know what their needs are, we were scared to death. Mm-hmm. And so we were always surprised that they actually let us leave the hospital with our baby after uh, how he and I behaved that night. It was a lot of stress. We were very scared. You know, there's some evidence that supports, too, that the babies themselves, too, they're used to such an overstimulating environment that when they're discharged home, it's similar for them where it's just, you know, they're feeling that attachment with you. You know, they want to, I think, I, in my personal belief, they want to be with you too. They want to be with you 24-7. But at the same time, upon coming home, it can be really overwhelming. It's all of a sudden you go from the bright white lights, the beeping sounds, the multiple caregivers, the crying babies, the mul- you know, just all these different things happening. All of a sudden you're in this quiet house. 
Right. Well, some some hospitals are doing a remarkable job. There's more rooming in over a longer term, mm-hmm. and uh, try to was more in more hospitals, right? And trying so to cool. have a, a more home like atmosphere, mm-hmm. so the baby and the parent is getting used to taking care of them. But that's not always the case. No. So leaving the hospital, this is not just me. This is mm-hmm. almost everybody I talk to. They equate it to jumping off a cliff without a parachute. Mm-hmm. And you're walking in the dark, right? Mm-hmm. We no longer have this stability of the doctors and the nurses and kind of on our own. And I think this is where some of the anxiety really presents itself, Mm -hmm. uh, the hypervigilance. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like I think that any, any NICU baby that has experienced or that the parents have witnessed experience a Brady or a DSAT, which, you know, for our listeners who are, are NICU parents, I think probably all of you know, but, you know, bradycardia event is when the heart rate slows down unpredictably. And, and an apnea event is when a DSAT, uh, otherwise known as, is when the breathing rate goes down significantly. They usually go hand in hand. And I know for Elliot, I'm not sure how it was for you guys with Jackson, but his last one was just a few days before discharge. And so... You know, I think they had to have at least five days after one of those before they would discharge them home. But knowing that it was within that time period that, you know, his heart had almost stopped, you know, and it took being able to, first of all, notice what was happening and then do the interventions that would get him back to breathing and back to normal, which, you know, it's considered a very typical slash normative event in the NICU. And you do kind of get get used to it if you can get used to something like that over, over time in the NICU. But when you go home and you realize... You're the guy between one of those events and what could come of them if you don't intervene. That's a lot of pressure to take on. I mean, does that resonate with you? Did, is that how you guys felt in terms of those or, or was it multiple? There, I know there's all kinds of other stuff that goes into it. Too. I don't know. I think there's this, you know, I f- just felt raw. I felt mm-hmm. like my nerves were raw mm-hmm. and I felt exhausted, yeah. <laughs> you know, a little overwhelmed and scared. But I also think coupled with isolation, I mean, I think, Ugh. you know, in your typical environment, you know, you have hopefully a mother or mother-in-law that's going to come and help care for the baby when they come home. And mm-hmm. you've got friends that are coming to visit and meals and, you know, uh, people, you're not necessarily cut off from society. But because of the fear of RSV and other things with associated with your baby's weakened immune system, right? And just uh, uh, let me clarify with you. Jackson was born in August, correct? Right. So when he was discharged, right in the middle right. of RSV, Elliot got discharged the first couple of weeks of RSV season too. So how long were you guys on quarantine? Well, for at least, I want to say it was at least six months yeah. uh, when we came home. Because, you know, when Jackson was born at 24 weeks mm-hmm. and he's 16 years old. So that back then, that was the cusp of viability. Yep. We did not get steroids before he was born. Did you have the RSV vaccine at that time? We did. Okay. We did. Thank luckily, yeah. luckily. Uh, which I know, unfortunately, we have to advocate even harder for now mm-hmm. uh, that it's not readily available like it used to be for, sure. for all preemies. So I think the isolation intensified my anxiety mm-hmm. of really being alone and worrying about that, that next shoe yep. <laughs> that's going to fall. And that really my only outings at that time, you know, we were seeing a pediatrician, a cardiologist, a urologist, a pulmonologist. And the ophthalmologist, those are only people that 
got to see his adorable baby clothes. Right. <laughs> you know, I'd get him all dressed up to go mm-hmm. to those doctor's appointments. That's a really good point. Yeah. <laughs> but I was I was terrified driving him there mm-hmm. alone. You know, he's on the monitor. Just even just getting there and maneuvering it it never felt like I was a natural mom, a natural parent, wearing the baby and all of these things. I mean, he was difficult to soothe mm-hmm. and he was difficult to feed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, trying to plan around these appointments and being able to feed him and soothe him and take care of him outside of the home and to keep him away from other people who are just curious and want to see the baby, right? Yeah. But, uh, you know, you're walking into doctor's appointments and there's lots of kids and you're, you're terrified your baby's going to get sick. Yeah. When I started to think about it, I started to conceptualize it as yet another one of those losses that NICU parents deal with is that just sort of safety and joy and unbridled freedom of being able to take your baby home from the hospital and not be shouldered with an extreme amount of stress. It was one of those things that it took me a couple months to realize after Elliot had been discharged before I realized, you know what, this feels like another loss because for us, like for me, I'm like mildly hippie-ish, you know? And so like I came home, I was like, I'm going to be baby wearing, nursing, I'm doing everything that I've been wishing to do these past three months, I'm going to do immediately upon getting home. And then I found out none of it would work. He would arch his back when he was in my baby sling. He didn't latch. He didn't want to do, you know, like stuff. He, he wanted to practice holding up his head. He's always been an, an independent little guy. It was just another set of things that I thought, oh, it's going to look this way. And no, it looked something completely different. And I think a lot of also his stuff, he had reflux. So he was on medication for reflux. And, you know, a lot of things, the back arching, the, the nursing, all that stuff I think could probably be directed back to that basic medical issue that he was coping with. But at the same time, it was just kind of like, are we really not done with this yet? I thought, you know, it was like tier after tier after tier of different things that you're like, okay, that's going to be different. That's going to be different. That's going to be different. And then when you're finally in your home free, literally, you get there and you realize that there's still going to be changes from everything and you're not going to even be able to talk about it because there's nobody there because well, they're locked up. And I, I think that's that's part of why we're doing the podcast, right? Mm-hmm. We want other parents to know that, that this is not atypical. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't want to scare them. Mm-hmm. I, I certainly don't want to scare them. And I'm hoping that their experience is easier mm-hmm. than ours was. But mm-hmm. I, I think there's something to be said for voicing and, and bringing these things out into light sure. and, and helping them prepare that, you know, it might not be the perfect scenario that you had been hoping for. I wanted to take just a moment, if you don't mind. Um, Not at you know, all. we've mentioned Casey Matthews a couple of times, and she has her memoir. Such a good writer. I just yeah. love, I love Casey, and we've become good friends. And Creamy Lessons in Love, Life, and Motherhood is her book, and she, I think, just really articulates the fears and the emotions of a NICU parent mm-hmm. after we go home. So I wanted to read an excerpt from her book real quick for you. Awesome. Uh, So Casey writes, racing back and forth from the hospital had been so intense. It was such a daily rush that on the morning it suddenly ceased and I went from 60 to zero. I wasn't sure what to do. I was the mother of two young children living under one roof, just what I'd been hoping for. And though I was relieved, I was also terrified. There was no running from the reality of my life. It was staring back at me through the eyes of my two young children. I imagined I was on a movie set. A director yelled, cut, and someone shouted, Andy's birth, take two. Mm -hmm. Part of the terror was that I didn't know what to expect. Thank God I couldn't see the future. If I'd had a crystal ball that morning, it would have told me that every day I would feel tentative, 
full of uncertainty. I'd cry often. Watching television programs about healthy babies, I'd sob until I had no tears left. I'd spend hours hovering over Andy as she slept in the white bassinet, making sure she was still breathing. Though there would be constant phone calls and packages filled with pink onesies, soft-receiving blankets, and picture books, I would have the constant dull ache of loneliness in my belly. I just think that's so fabulous that the loneliness that we feel once we're home yeah. and, and also that hypervigilance, the worried of what's to come. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she says here she's glad she didn't have a crystal ball. And, and part of that is because Andy did end up having RSV. Mm-hmm. In Casey's book, she explores that and talks more about her post-traumatic stress mm-hmm. in dealing with the rehospitalization of her baby and almost losing Andy because of RSV after having spent all those months in the NICU. So these are these are big issues. This sure. is not to be mm-hmm. glossed over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've, you've had a NICU stay. Your baby has survived. For some moms like you, they thought they were bringing home twins and they're Mm -hmm. bringing home one baby. There's still a loss. Yes. And sometimes we gloss over that. I mean, you shared with me, you know, some people would say, well, at least you have Elliot. Mm -hmm. And I think that can, while people are, they mean it out of love. Mm -hmm. They're trying to find something positive and and hopeful to say to you. Right. But that was your baby and you were planning for two and you, and you have buried a son. Mm-hmm. And so for a lot of our, our Nikki parents, they were carrying multiples. They were planning to bring home babies. And so even coming home is a reminder of that loss. Yes, absolutely. We hadn't even gotten a nursery set up prior to when I went into preterm labor. So the Nikki really threw everything for a loop and changed the whole story. Another thing that came up quite a bit when we initially came home as the whole idea of he's not a preemie anymore. And, you know, it was just like, no, actually, you know, we won't be able to celebrate Thanksgiving with everyone this year. We won't be able to do the holiday festivities that you're used to us being able to do because the RSV season is just too much. Well, let me interject there. Yeah. That first Christmas, we were alone for the first time ever. We're used to being with our families. My Mm -hmm. mother had the flu. And so it was just me and Mike and our baby. And at the time, I was so sad. Mm -hmm. But when I look back at it, it was such a beautiful Christmas. It Mm -hmm. really was of just being able to be with him and my and, and and celebrate that time with my husband and my baby after all we had been through. So I do want to encourage parents to know that there will be more Christmases Mm -hmm. and there will be more. Thanksgivings and birthday parties and all of those things, but also acknowledge it's hard. Yeah, it's hard being isolated, and you're you're also so anxious to show those babies off. You want I everybody know. to see them, mm-hmm. and so some of those things are delayed. What helped you when you got home? You know, in terms of coping with the anxiety, were there any things that were specifically helpful to you? Would you say, or to Mike too? Oh gosh, not at the time. Yeah. Not at the time because I really didn't realize what was going on. Mm-hmm. I didn't really recognize the anxiety and the and the apprehension. You know, it was a long time before I sought therapy. So I wasn't seeing it for what it was. Yeah. Again, like depression, I mean, anxiety is insidious, you know, and it's kind of, it's one of those things too that I feel like with the anxiety piece, it's almost like it just carries on from the NICU. There's no real breaking point. And so. I think it caused a lot of stress in our marriage because my husband was extremely hypervigilant. So there was one day when I went to the grocery store and that was my really my only outing. Once a week, I'd go to the grocery store. Mm -hmm. And early on, this is before everybody's carrying cell phones that tells you how long ago this was. 
But Michael was having me paged. And he was like, something's wrong. Something's wrong with the baby. I need you to come right now. And I'm like, look, I've got a cart full of groceries. I'm sure he's fine. He's just, and he's like, no, I've already called the pediatrician. We're going in. And, you know, I got home and assessed the situation. And everything was fine. But, you know, because Mike didn't typically care for Jackson all by himself mm-hmm. and he couldn't get him to, to, to calm down, that kind of anxiety and hypervigilance and not being able to be away, you know, and that became harder and harder Mm -hmm. that, you know, I didn't have any time away to process things, to be alone. Even just having that moment to yourself. A glass of wine with your friends, you know, that was not happening. Yeah, or even (laughs) just taking a shower, you know, like basic self-care. Yeah. So having that support system is really important, but I talk a lot about the fact that you're dealing with medical bills at this point, mm-hmm. a lot of medical bills, and you're going to a lot of doctor's appointments, and you're juggling therapists possibly in and out of your house or taking them to appointments. And for those of us who have had to go back to work, typically for a micropremie, child care is not an option. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- there's just a lot that we're really dealing with and advocating for. I know RSV, again, rears its ugly head. You know, we don't all qualify for the shots anymore and, and trying to find out what we do and do not qualify for. I've spent so much time on the phone with our insurance company. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's another thing I think a lot of NICU parents become expert in is figuring out the inner workings of the medical and the insurance system. <laughs> right. Unfortunately. And, and then you're not you're not spending quality time with your baby if you're on the phone with an insurance provider. I remember my mother coming in at some point, and I had a, a, just this notebook of all of these bills and all of these letters, and she was just like, put it away. Just right. put it away. There will be a time and a place when we're ready to, to deal with all of that. I think you spoke to something really critical, too, is when you were talking about how you and Mike would cope with the anxiety differently or that the way that you would express it would be very different. I think that's extremely common in working with couples through NICU healing, that oftentimes comes up as a subject of contention because people have their different levels of comfort. Um, So it's something to be mindful of, I think, as parents and and being in a partnership of how to support each other and how to almost set up like a standard of practice so that everybody feels contained and safe and being able to manage care for the baby and feel like they're on the same page and feel supported by each other because that can be really challenging. And I want to say, too, we're not just talking about micro preemies. No. I mean, bringing home Good a late point. a late term preemie can also be very stressful. Or even just a medically fragile term baby. It really doesn't have any boundaries when it comes to anybody who's had that NICU. A stay. baby born with a special health care need. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't. I mean, anyone who's had a NICU stay. You know, bringing home this baby that's going to require ongoing medical care and doctor's appointments and therapy. Um, it, it can just be so exhausting. So again, having that support system in place and knowing how to deal with all these things. But I think it's really important that I just want to recognize that the challenges don't end at the hospital doors. No. And we need to be prepared for that. Mm-hmm. Not again, not to scare people. Sure. But just that they are aware that our babies are medically fragile, mm-hmm. no matter if they're micro preemie or late term preemie. Mm-hmm. And they need special care when they come home. And how important it is that the parent, you know, we've been talking a lot about postpartum depression and anxiety and PTSD and our bond with our baby, we have to be emotionally and physically able to take care of these babies when they come home. Mm -hmm. So we have to address these needs in the mom and the dad. Yes. So that we can care for our baby when they come home because it's a big responsibility and it depends on the diagnosis of the child, but it can be many years. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So for both of my kids, you know, we've had. Yeah, I'd like to hear about it and how it went and, and what, you know, what were the things? Because it's just this inordinate set of stressors. Anyway, go ahead. I'd like I'd love to hear more about your well, story. Well, the, br- the, the breathing for my son was always the biggest. I mean, of course, you've got to be able to breathe. Right. Mm-hmm. And he as micro preemie had been on the ventilator for an extended period of time. So he had a lot of scarring. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's always had breathing issues. So daily breathing treatments mm-hmm. and seeing the pulmonologist on a regular basis basis and always being scared that he was going to get sick because any little cold can make him very, very ill. He had retinopathy of prematurity. And so those ongoing doctor's visits were so important. And um, his eyesight has changed a a great deal over time. But, you know, those follow-up appointments were just essential because I do know of preemies whose eyes have gotten considerably worse because their parents didn't continue to take them for their follow-up appointments and didn't find out early enough. So he's had years of occupational speech and physical therapy. And even my late-term preemie mm-hmm. has had occupational and physical therapy. And then there was sensory integration disorder. And I think that that gets glossed over a lot, but it is a huge issue mm-hmm. for, for all of our, our NICU your babies because of our underdeveloped systems and then we're being exposed to pain and light and right. sound all and kinds all kinds of stimulation right. all sure. kinds of stimulation so sensory integration there's been visual and auditory processing as well as ADD and ADHD so Again, just so parents are aware mm-hmm. that these are common for NICU parents, they just need to be aware of the potential problems that the kids could face and make sure that they're taking them for their developmental assessments and all of their follow-up appointments because we're kind of on our own now to navigate this sea of doctor's appointments, medical equipment, medication, therapy, insurance forms, all while caring for for the baby. I mean, another thing to speak to, too, is that with having this barrage of different stuff to be concerned about or be aware of, is that it can really, really amp up the anxiety. Like, I know for me, for example, like when I was talking about Elliot would arch his back. Well, back arching, as many NICU parents know that had a baby with reflux, is, a, is one of the main symptoms of having reflux. However, being who I am, I doctor Googled it, and within 24 hours, I had convinced myself that Elliot had cerebral palsy. And went to the pediatrician, they calmed me down, you know, but it was just like your anxiety can really run away with you when you're balancing all these different things on your plate. And so I want to put that out there just to normalize it, but also to remember to try and, and stay as grounded as you can can, you know, integrating breathing exercises, figuring out the things that are making you feel more in the moment and more taken care of. Those are going to be really important things to integrate into your day-to-day life to the best of your ability, even though it's borderline impossible, given how busy it is. But it's something to be aware of because I think by the time Elliot was, you know, older, I I started to realize, you know, my anxiety was taking away so much of my day that it's, you know, I had to end up combating it because it was taking away some of the essential parts of parenting that I I really cared about. Well, I think this is a place where peer support can be very helpful. Yes. I found a support group actually online during this time period, and I can't emphasize enough how much it helped in the moment of just having real... In fact, actually, that exact issue that I just discussed about Elliot arching his back, I posted about it. It was a posting forum type of a situation. And so many people responded like, no, Dr. Google, no, Dr. Google, and would say, you know, my kid did that, now they're fine. My kid did that, now they're fine. And so when you're in that moment, and particularly when it's your first 
child and of course your first premature child um, or your first medically fragile child, you don't know what it's going to look like down the road. So to me, you know, it was like, okay, is this going to have these major results down the line? You know, because some of those things can be really scary. Even Elliot had physical therapy for torticollis, and it made me wonder, you know, what is this going to result in down the road? Is he going to have a weird gait when he walks or something like that? So it really helped to talk to other parents that had already been through something similar that their kids were doing fine. And it may be in the moment, it may feel awful having to go to six different appointments a week or having to do medications or having to do different kinds of exercises with the babies. It feels just so out of sorts and different than what you expected parenting to look like that in and of itself it can give you anxiety. But to know that down the road that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be severely disabled or that they're going to be severely affected by it, you know? I'd also like to talk about something that's a little hard to talk about, Mm -hmm. uh, to admit it, but I think it's not uncommon Mm -hmm. that we can grow frustrated and angry at our babies. Mm -hmm. They're harder to parent. Right. Typically, our preemies, because of um, their sensory issues, because of their feeding issues, because oftentimes we are now under financial pressure because we have a lot of medical bills and Mm -hmm. um, we're dealing with insurance. We're having trouble in our relationships in a lot of ways that it is not uncommon to begin to resent and blame the child. Mm -hmm. And I just want to acknowledge that and say that while it's certainly not the child's fault, it is not uncommon to feel that way. But I want us to recognize that and and talk about how, how do we resolve those feelings? Because we are at a higher risk for child abuse. Mm -hmm. The studies show, and which you would just think after all these months of caring for our babies in the NICU that we would never dream of hurting them in any way. But child abuse is also neglect. So if we are suffering from depression or PTSD and we're not bonding with our baby, if we're not taking them for their follow-up care, if we're not doing the developmental care at home. So I, I just wanted to to ask you, you know, do you feel that that could happen, that we could begin to to resent and blame our own child? Yeah, I mean, I think based on what I've seen, it's much more common for people to blame themselves and to take that blame so far that it becomes more of the depression taking over and having that lack of checking in, you know, with the infant because you're you're so bogged down with the coping with the depression that it could be challenging. Sometimes when a baby is less responsive, so, you know, therefore if it is coping with maybe some developmental challenges or that sort of thing, they're not going to respond in typical ways that a baby might to different interventions that a parent might do, which can be exceedingly frustrating. Uh, Another issue that I don't know the exact statistic for, so I want to be careful about quoting about it, but it's pretty staggering. It's something that, you know, colic is at least 20 to 30 percent higher rate than what the typical term baby deals with because they're so underdeveloped. And so, you know, dealing with a baby that's crying for prolonged periods of time for anyone is extremely challenging, and especially when you don't have that built-in support. When you're by yourself, there's nobody there to say, you know, hey, can you watch them for 10 minutes while I go, you know, just take a breather outside or whatnot. I do want to say that it's really important to be able to speak to the true frustrations, pains, and sadnesses, and just grief that people are experiencing when they're discharged from the NICU, and it just looks completely different than anything they could have imagined. It's like you have to learn a whole system. It's almost like learning a whole different language. 
you know, after learning the language of the NICU, now you have to learn the language of going home after the NICU and what that's going to look like. And so being able to speak to the frustrations, I think there's such a huge cultural stigma around speaking to frustrations, sadness, and sometimes even anger that you feel with circumstances being different than what you could have ever predicted, that it makes people keep it to themselves. And then that's when I feel like people go into the red zone, the danger zone, because they can't speak to those frustrations. They're feeling shameful. They're feeling like there's no way out and they're feeling all by themselves. You know, it's okay to feel frustrated. It's just a matter of coming up with what is your safety zone going to look like? What's your safety plan for when it starts to take over? Who can you rely on? Who do you reach out to? And how do you feel safe? You know? I think it's about inviting people in to still help us, mm-hmm. um, still accepting meals. I mean, you just brought home a new baby. Mm-hmm. I mean, granted, your baby was in the NICU and maybe people were providing meals while you were in the NICU, but sure. you've just brought home a newborn mm-hmm. and it's still an extremely stressful time. So mm-hmm. if someone wants to walk the dog for you or mow the yard for you or run errands for you, allowing people to help you during that time. I wanted to touch again on advocating for our babies during Mm -hmm. this time. I mean, it it can be very challenging advocating for our babies to get the follow-up care they need and feeling empowered. So because maybe we found our voice and we were feeling powerful in the NICU, but now, like you said, we're learning a whole new language. Mm -hmm. And so we may feel more vulnerable again when we go home. Sure. Being able to feel empowered again that you know your baby. Like we just discussed a child the other day that ended up in the ER and they sent the baby home and the mother, because it was a young mother, they discounted what she was saying and it ended up being meningitis. The NICU is a long haul and you've learned a lot about both the health of the baby and your own personality. Well, I really want to build up the parents too. You you can do this. You know your baby Mm -hmm. and you are prepared. Ask Mm -hmm. the questions you need to ask, but feel confident in your ability to care for your baby when you bring them home. Mm -hmm. Find joy in every day. I know it's stressful, but really enjoy and celebrate the milestones and all the baby has overcome, all that you as a family have overcome. Celebrate the strength that it took to get through this NICU journey and understand that this too will pass. That, you know, those first weeks and months at home can be extremely stressful and difficult, but you're going to get your sea legs. Uh, You are going to find your voice. You are your baby's best advocate. And I believe with the love and support of the family, that baby is going to continue to do well and meet their milestones. So just believe in yourself and uh, keep your communication strong with your family and your husband and your partner. And we just wish you the best because we want you to celebrate the NICU graduation is something to, to truly celebrate and be proud of, but really understanding what you've been through. You've been through a very traumatic experience, and uh, you might need some time to regroup and set your goals for for the coming few months and what you need and putting that support system in place. So, Kara, thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me, Kelly. Appreciate you helping us have a very open and honest discussion about those challenges when we bring the baby home. A quote to remember today is from Linda Wooten. Being a mother is learning about the strengths you didn't know you had and dealing with the fears you didn't know existed. In order for NICU babies to thrive after discharge, they need smart, informed parents who understand their needs and are emotionally and physically capable of caring for a medically fragile child. Peer-to-peer support is an effective tool for helping parents navigate their NICU stay Support from a caring and informed NICU graduate parent 
helps a new family feel more capable, confident, and ready to face the journey ahead. To request support, volunteer, or donate, please visit our website at handtohold.org.